So this morning I spoke to you about Christ at the center. How many of you were at the service this morning? That's nice. And um, where were the rest of you? Online, okay. The, uh, I don't really know fully what I would term this message. I don't know what the title should be. Chanel asked me. I can't, I don't have a title yet. I'm distracted by many things. For one, the aircon. And it's very, very difficult with that distraction to, to calm down. Because I have to be calm to be able to teach you to hear the Holy Spirit. And all I'm hearing is not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'm hearing everything about him now. So pray for me. Let's see where this goes. So it's amazing. We can still have technology and connect in with uh, Stellenbosch. Although we have so many of Stellenbosch's people this side. So you're alone there in Stellenbosch tonight. We have all of them here. All of those from Stellenbosch, just stand up, please. Let them see where you're at. They came in just for our service. And who's here from Namibia? Just stand up on your feet. That's uh, international. We're international. I'm the only pastor in this church who's, who's preached internationally often. And Pastor Alicia. <laughs> She's actually preached in Namibia. Louis hasn't. Prophet Louis hasn't. We'll send him to Botswana soon. I can go and preach there. Who else has been? Niels, have you been to Namibia? Ah, two international preachers. That's good. You've been there. It's, it's amazing. All right. And um, my notes are here, which is always good. I think open up your scriptures in Hebrews chapter number 12. We'll begin there. And we'll see where the Holy Spirit takes us. Maybe I should start in Matthew 25 first. Matthew 25. Let's talk about the talents. This is a backdrop. We had a, a Domini, Dirkie van der Spey, come and speak to us once here during our, our Bible school sessions. I think it was a Bible school session. And... Uh, well, one of the confabs we had. So we have multiple confabs during the year, and we often have somebody come in to speak to us. And we also had Pastor John, John Simons from Doxadeo, who's the lead pastor for Doxadeo, came in and spoke to us. And next year, we'll have other people. We also had uh, Davi Ruet that was here, who's one of the leading economists in our nation as well. Uh, not from a spiritual perspective, but just to talk to us about the financial world in which we are operating now. And um, next year for our Bible school, we'll have multiple other people. I have one or two people in mind. I don't know if they'll do it. We'll see. But after that, Duomini Dirki wrote me a letter. And um, I, I don't remember, was it a handwritten letter or an email? Was it, I think it was a handwritten, I think it was a handwritten letter. Was it a handwritten letter? Alicia is my assistant as well. To me and Chanel, you should remember. I mean, it's only been like nine months ago. He wrote me a letter, but I remember the letter. He said he complimented the church and the structure and how we are um, very well organized and how we do things well and how there is great energy and excitement in the room. And then he gave me a warning. And he warned me, he said, these are the three things that goes after God's people. Gold, glory, or girls. It's always one of the three, and you can put it in these categories. Gold, glory, or girls. And, and you'll, you'll, you'll often find... So I was talking to another old friend of mine during the week. He said, talking about grace, because there are people that are upset with us, because I am a grace preacher. I do believe in grace, but they're also calling us uh, some other names now, saying that we are... Uh, you have to sort of work which is not me saying it, it's James in the Bible saying it. I'm just echoing what James is saying and people are not happy with it. My friend said to me, you'll notice that there are many preachers who preach grace um, but don't have an affair. But there are many preachers who have an affair and all of them are grace preachers. 
There are many preachers who don't do anything wrong and will preach grace, but there are many, uh, every single one of them who, who do wrong will be grace preachers. It's like the saying, not everything with four legs is a horse, but a horse has four legs. And a person that is in an affair, caught in an affair, will obviously have to preach about grace, otherwise they can't get on the platform. I don't subscribe to that so much, although we are grace preachers, we have to understand that God is holy. This morning I spoke to you and that said to you that God, Jesus Christ, is the center. He is the center of the existence of the church. And often the pastor makes the mistake, pastors preaching, myself included, would say, I'm preaching at my church. It's not my church. The better word to use if we, we are explaining things is to, to use the word because language is important. I don't refer to my employees as resources. My employees are people and individuals who has family and children and babies. Those slight changes in, in vocabulary conveys understanding. And when I say it's my church as a pastor, it feels like I own the thing. That's why people don't want to tithe because it's not theirs. But when we use inclusive language, not inclusive like the world is inclusive, but inclusive language that this is our church, then that is not my chair, it's our chair. And if somebody's breaking that chair, he is breaking our chair. So, what was I saying? I don't know yet. We're still working on the introduction. Gold, gold, gold glory, and girls. So, so, it's not my church, it's our church. And God is, is, is in the center of the church. I spoke to you, said to you that in Revelations it says there are seven lampstands. And the lampstand is supposed to give light to that which is in front of the lampstand. Revelation says that Jesus is standing in the middle of the lampstands. He goes further in Revelations 1 and explains that the seven lampstands is the seven churches. And out of the seven churches, he gives a warning or a rebuke to five of them. Five of the churches are out of line and he corrects them, be it historical churches or church, church periods in history, whatever that may mean. Uh, that's not the purpose of this, this talk, this sermon today. But Jesus is in the middle of the churches and the churches exist to bring Jesus glory, to shine on Jesus. Jesus is the center of the church. We come together to glorify Jesus, to lift him up, to throne him, to, to say that he is seated on the highest place in our lives. He cannot be seated in the highest place of your life if you can't surrender your time to him. Because then time is the idol. If he doesn't have your time, and your time is divided to everything that is important, and Christ is not in that importance list, he is not seated in the highest place. Time is. But if, 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 if Jesus is not in the high seat of your finances and everything gets allocated funds, but not Jesus, in terms of sowing, how can you say that Jesus is Lord of all? He is Lord of everything except your finances. You don't want his opinion because it is not surrendered. And in all these things, Jesus in the word of God teaches us that he addresses all these issues. There is, there, I don't find anything that Jesus doesn't address in the Bible. He addresses our issues. He addresses what we can make an idol. He addresses those things very radically. He is the center. He is, he is the preeminent one. He is, he is the center of our universe. Nothing exists without him. We call him when we pray. You often hear me pray and say, Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And although you may be fooled into thinking I know anything about Greek languages, I don't. This is all pure research. And, but it tells me that he encapsulates the entire language. And that he is the beginning and the end of that language which describes them. The New Testament being written in Greek. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the preeminent one. He is the center of the whole universe. Nothing that exists was made without Jesus. I want to submit to you that one day we'll get to, have you ever heard people say it costs a price to serve God? 
That price only costs you something until you realize that what you paid was far too little for what you got. I want to submit to you that one day when you get into heaven, you're going to look back over your life and look back in shame on that which you call the price. Because what you get is not equivalent to what you gave. God, on the other hand, gave far more for you than you can ever give to get him. That's why there is no transaction in you getting God. That's grace. Because it's not an equal playing field. You can't pay for God. Your time that you give when measured in eternity is too far, uh, too small a price to pay to get him who owns all eternity. So not even your time spent at church can be counted as a cost. The friendships you gave up is a couple of years in your lifetime, again measured in the line of eternity is nothing. You paid nothing to have him. Peter understood, had a glimpse of this when he said, I don't want to be crucified up, uh, right way up. It's, a, it's, 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 I cannot do that to be crucified in the same manner, let crucify me upside down. Because even that was not a price to him when compared to what he would get. Paul, under the revelation of who God is, when the light shone upon him and for a moment he was blind, blind to who he was so that his eyes could open to who God needs him to be. And God said, go pray for me because I want to show him how much you will suffer for me. He said, I count everything as drak, uh, the Afrikaans uh, uh, drak. In English, it uses the word loss. Um, it's almost like vomit, a waste. I count everything a waste to inherit Christ. The goal and the price is Christ. Now to have that is one thing, and, and, and I'm not trying to repeat this morning's message, but I need to drive this point home so that you get it and, 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 and it's like skin engrafted into your arm when you have a skin graft. That skin that is, 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 is put on your arm, it becomes part of you. The scripture has to be engrafted into your life. And this understanding has to be engrafted into your life so that you assimilate it in a way that it becomes a part of who you are. Scripture is not something we read as another book. It's something that becomes who we are. And so you have to understand that Jesus is the center. And if he is the center, I said to you, it is possible to have the revelation that Jesus is Lord but still have carnal thinking. The scripture uses this phrase. He says, be renewed by the renewing of your mind. Be renewed by the renewing of your mind. So it is possible to be regenerated, but not renewed. Make sense? It is possible to be saved, which means you are placed in right standing with God, but you don't understand nothing yet. If you study scriptures, you'll see this journey that Jesus walks out with the disciples. And he often says to them, do you still not understand? They were already saved, but did not understand. And this was on a three year journey with Jesus. They saw miracles that we have not seen yet. They were the first miracle Jesus does is walk up to six pots of water. And as they pour it, it turns into wine. I think that would blow any person's mind. Jesus walks past a dead pe person at a funeral procession and raises the dead man back into life. Lazarus is dead, smells bad already. You know he's dead when he smells. Calls him out of the tomb. We're saved for a couple of years and we think we have a handle on truth. They walked with Jesus and still didn't understand. They physically could touch him, sit down and take the bread from his physical hands as he broke it to them. They could sit and inquire and ask him questions personally that we, it's like seeing him personally, asking him questions, touch him, see the miracles and still not understand. Who do you think you are to, to get to a place of complete wisdom? Every remark you make about anything you say about scripture or a church or a person that God has called is mostly wrong. I've been living with Chanel for a couple of years now. And it's, I'm still learning about what she likes or dislikes and she is learning about me and we are growing together. 
if that is difficult to do, how do you that stand on the outside of any person that you make a remark about know them? As if you're so sure. You're not. So we have to, we have to study more. So we, we have, hopefully most of you are saved. If you're not saved tonight, we'll give you an opportunity to make right with Jesus. We pray with you, make sure that you are saved. You can leave this place knowing that you are in right standing with Jesus. But besides that, we have to move forward in our understanding to grasp what God wants to do for us. And, and, and to do that is not that easy. So we have to start. Let's start with the parables. We'll see if we can get some ground covered tonight. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. This is a picture of Jesus and the church is the picture of Jesus and us. This is a parable. It's God using stories of real life and in that hiding spiritual truths. It's like a man going on a journey called his servants. He wants to be the greatest of all, needs to be the servant of all. The level of your greatness is determined by your servanthood. Anyone who desires to be great but does not serve will never be great in the kingdom of God. You can be renowned but not great. You can be famous but not great. You can be well known and not great. Jesus considered greatness not measured in likes, but in serving. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability. God is treating each one of us fairly, not equally. You have to hear that. Make a note of that. Jesus entrusts us fairly with gifts and talents, but not equally. This tells us that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of equality. We are not all equal because he gave to the one five, he gave to the one two, and he gave to the one one talent. Not everybody has five talents. You can want five talents, but it doesn't mean you have five talents. And you can be so upset that you don't have five talents that you squander the one. And most people never progress into the potential of their lives because they're upset that they don't have the five. They blame the guy with five for them having one and they never use the one which is an indictment not against God but against you. Maybe the one was too much anyway. As you'll see in the story. Because he, got, he has the one but doesn't use it. If you were to ask him, he would tell you before he got the one that he deserves the five. Very few people will tell God, no, I need less. Let me work that fast first. So he gives them this talent and they begin to work it. But he who has received one talent went to dug a ground and his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. And he had received five talents, came forward, bringing the five talents, saying, more saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. So the guy with the five talents, I, I don't want to get into the, uh, this is not the, the, the core of the message. So I want to try and get away from it. But the guy with the five talents, who has five talents, where did he get, where did he get, when we talk about trying to connect the dots of this message, gold, glory, girls. I'm not going to talk about all three, but I might make comments about that. Gold, glory, or girls. The reason I'm talking about this is because you have to understand that your finances has to be surrendered to God. Who gave him the five talents? So if you are a Christian, you have to answer this question first. What do you believe? Do you believe that you are you outside of God? Do you have everything you have by yourself? This is why I wanted to pull up a chair so we can sit down and talk about this because I'm going to appeal to some reasoning ability within yourselves so that we can reason out foolishness, get to some understanding. Who gave him the five talents? The master. So to handle the five talents as if it belongs to him is the, is the, the attitude of, of being trustworthy with what is not mine, but it's never been mine. What do you own that's yours? When God says to you, you have to sow a seed, you don't want to sow a seed because it's yours. This is the, the wrong premise that most Christians live their lives from because what is mine is mine. I worked for it. Yet the breath in your lungs is borrowed. He says he owns the whole universe and everything in it. You are owned by God. You are purchased by God when he gave his life for yours. You gave him death and he gave you life. What do you own? 
but owe him. You owe nothing but owe him everything. This is the foundation of your Christianity. That in yourself you owe nothing. You have surrendered all so that you may live in him. And what Jesus does is he gives you all that he is because he calls you an heir to the throne of God. You are his and he is yours. You've made an exchange. It's in the exchange of a robe and an identity. He gives you your, takes your identity on him and he gives you his identity. I am righteous because of Christ. My unrighteousness became his covering. And on that cross he paid for my unrighteousness. So when he gives you the talent and you work the talent, whose talents are you working? You're working his talents. It belongs to him. It is God's talents that you are working in your life. Now, how to explain this? I explained this to someone, I don't know if it was this morning or last night. If you're a one talent person and there's a five talent person, you're here and you want to, your one talent can get you here. I explained it this afternoon to someone. Let me, let me put it this way. If this is one talent, and this is where your one talent can take you. And over here is a five talent person. Many one talent people don't want to be here. They want to be here by the five talent guy. And because they're upset that they're not at the five talent guy, they're in the middle potential here somewhere. They never work this one talent to get to where their potential is because they're not a five talent guy. And we sometimes in our envy lose what we have. So Jesus comes back, this guy comes back, this, this man going on a journey, but he who received one talent and who had received five talents came forward, bringing the five talents. Master, you delivered to me five talents. Where's the story? He who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much into, enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But this master answered and said, you wicked and slothful servant. This is the same nice Jesus that we want. This is the picture of nice Jesus. So let me break your tradition and religious spirit. Jesus is not nice. Jesus is not nice. I have never called anyone Satan. I've never walked up to a pastor and said to him, you're a brood of vipers. You're all serpents. Have you done that? Jesus is not nice. We want Jesus to be nice because it makes us feel goosebumps and love and then we can get away with everything. Jesus is not nice. Jesus wants you to grow up. He goes to the guy with the one talent. You would think that Jesus would be more kind to the guy who has less. Jesus is nicer to the guy who has more than he is to the guy who has less. He doesn't go to the guy who has less and go like, life's hard. Life's hard. You are a one talent person. Let me help you. He takes the one talent guy, talent back from him. And the one talent goes like, okay, mate, he says, Give this to the guy with the five talents, now, who now has 10 talents. Imagine the gap between the guy who didn't work what he has. And we talk about equality gaps. Imagine the gap between the guy who sat in the chair judging everything, who made assumptions because he had an assumption. I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow. He had an assumption that limited his ability to use his gift. What is your assumption about God that is causing you to not be usable? What do you think about Jesus, about his church, about his kingdom that is robbing you of being useful? He takes this one talent from this guy. He gives it to the guy with the 10 talents. He says, you grab his talent. Now that guy has 11 and he's not even to the much yet. He says over the little you were faithful. I want to submit to you that most people struggle in life because you are not faithful in the little. We think that when we get to the much, we'll be faithful in the much. The little is a sign that you won't be. And if Jesus gives us this parable that he tests them with five, two and one talents, you will not escape that teaching. You will not escape the manifestation of that in your life. If you are not faithful, God will never increase your life.
I guess what I'm trying to say to you is how many of you are stuck because you're found to not be faithful? And what assumptions do you have about the kingdom that is robbing you of your faithfulness? People think the wrong things are sin and God doesn't even care about those. And then there are sins that God cares about. You're not even privy to it. What if your assumptions about what God likes and dislikes is wrong? I was asking Chanel the other day what type of chocolate she likes. And I was shocked that I still don't know because I don't get a straight answer. I don't know. I don't know because it's all of them. It depends on what day of the week it is. But what are you assuming about God that is robbing you? Church attendance is one of the questions. What do you think about church attendance? How do you think we have these armbands? What would Jesus do? We don't believe what it says. We should get armbands. What would Judas do? That's not nice. Where did I saw that? I actually saw one guy making a joke about it. What would Judas do? <laughs> what do you think Jesus feels about? How do you think Jesus feels about church attendance? Because that, that thing that you think is so, you think the big things, the important things is what concerns Jesus. I don't know. I can't even think of an example that what people, but what do you think is church attendance to Jesus? So, so here's what the devil does. I'm saying this and in your mind, you're thinking, oh, he just wants the church full. So he's using that as a manipulation technique to get the church full. So he is, he is saying that I have to be concerned with church attendance to get the, so that he can get the church full. I don't think it's that important to Jesus. Jesus is much more concerned if I give someone food, which one do you think is the little? What if that assumption is, is just a small example of things that trip you up for what God can do in your life? I want to submit to you. I've submitted many things tonight. I put forward as I broached the topic of church attendance. I read to you the 10 tenants of church attendance. Hey. Hey. I can use big words too. Central tenants of the Christian faith. For 25 years, I've been attending church Sunday morning, Sunday evening. I plan holidays around Sunday. It's not for the 25 years that I've been preaching. I've been preaching for, let's say, call it 15. There's been at least 10 years that I did not preach. But a church attendance was Sunday morning, Sunday evening. So there's an example of a principle that was understood. And so the reason could not be if my example displays the, the difference. It's not about getting the church full. It's about dealing with assumptions. How many other assumptions do we have that is limiting our ability to multiply the tenants that, talents that God has put in our lives? If church attendance is one, there are thousands of assumptions that we have about money that limits God's ability to do a miracle in your finances. You can pray, you can pray all you want. If you violate the scripture of God, when it comes to finances, your prayer doesn't do much because Jesus is simply going to respond because he deals with, ten, five, with five, two and one talent people. He's expecting you to be better than you are. God designed you. God, God knows what capacity has put within you. He's going to challenge you to the level that, that the humankind can extend to. He's not going to come down to the, the level of the culture and he's going to challenge you on finances. And yet we don't want to rise up in that thing, finances. We want to have opinions about it. What if that is, has become a limiting factor in what God can do in your life? Does that make any sense? Am I saying anything? All right, let's try and move on. Okay, let's go back. To Hebrews 12 and now read this in context. Now therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who's this cloud of witnesses? Everybody from the Old Testament. I heard a guy say today don't say that the Bible was authored by 40 different authors. It was authored by one. The Holy Spirit. 
It wasn't authored by 40 different people. It was authored by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired 40 different people to pen down what he wanted them to write. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm going to sit down. You know, today I've stumbled three times on this platform and it's never happened before that I can remember. All right, pray for me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off. This is not written to non-believers. This is not written to the world outside the church. We have church language. You should learn it. We talk about Christianese. I don't put Christianese on my Facebook because a person outside the church doesn't understand it. But in here, I have church language. Words like anointing, falling over, or, or laying hands on people. That's church language. You should learn it. This is the language of the kingdom of God. Let us throw off everything that hinders. This speaks into what is hindering you from being usable by God. Are we so arrogant as to say nothing? I don't have flaws. How, how do you run your race by critiquing other people's races? Have you ever seen in the World Cup rugby? One of the rugby players stand there and go like, Yo, die out with oposcope. They'll take him off the team. Who's the ones criticizing? The audience. The ones watching the players play. Do you think Jesus wants you to be a spectator or a participator? Does Jesus want you on the field or on the, on the benches, on the side? When you sit in a service like this and find fault with what I'm preaching of how, or how I'm saying it, you're not playing. Or you're playing in very small little league. Because I don't have time to criticize other churches. I'm just fighting for ours. If you're criticizing, you're not participating. Because when you run, you can't pay attention to how the guy next to you is running. If you do the, what do you call it, hackies and angles? Hurdles. If you're doing hurdles, you'll break your neck if you watch the guy next to you. You will not survive it. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders. What is hindering you? Why can't you take your one talent and make it two? Why can't you take your two talents and make it four? Why can't you take your five talents and make it ten? What is hindering you from increasing? The next story I got on here, I might not read it. Let's see. Uh, so Greg Ladderwitz, let us throw off perseverance the race. Where are we? So easy. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You know the picture I have? What picture do, does this, this scripture elicit in your mind when I say entangled? I see those penguins with fishing nets around them in the sea. I see a dolphin with a net around him. I see a, 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 a warthog in a fence on a farm caught between a trap that the the locals said to catch it. That's what I think sin does. It keeps you stationary. It traps you and stops you from moving. People don't like us preaching about sin. They want us to preach about grace because if I preach about grace, you can go another day with doing the same thing. Sin calls you to stop. God will not disqualify you from heaven because salvation is free. You'll get to heaven. But I don't want to get to heaven stationary. I don't want to get to heaven without momentum, having done something for my God. Put the scripture back on. Let's finish it. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Easily is a word put in there. Easily. Sin is not difficult to entangle you. Sin will entangle you easily. And let us run with perseverance. Let us, well, inclusive language, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What is your race marked out for you? Are you running? Or are you, are you just paying attention to those that run? Next verse. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the center. You are not, if, 
You should take out your iPhones if you have a proper phone. I don't know if these other things have notepads on it. But after 45 clicks, you'll get to a notepad on your Android phone. With the iPhone, it's like click, click, you're there. Make a note. Make a note. Church hurt is not their fault, it's your fault. As jy die kerk het my seer gemaak, wat is fout met jou? Oh, I, I, I just left the church. Why? I just got hurt in the church. Church hurt. Have you ever say, seen anybody go like, I can not see in school. Nooit weer teruggegaan nie. I was school hurt, so I didn't go much. Have you ever? School is a lot more dangerous than church. Have you seen anyone stabbed at church yet? Have you seen anybody get pregnant because of a church service? The devil is playing with you. He's a puppet on a string. You are. The Bible does say you will suffer many things. Church hurt. That doesn't fall under suffering. I quit. Your eyes were not on Jesus. It's on people. Because if it was on Jesus, the bumps and the bruises won't disqualify you. You can't run your race if your eyes are on me. I'm just a human being. Ask my wife, a spectacularly well-built one, but nevertheless, just a human being. I could open up. I almost fell and broke my neck. Do you think Jesus would have stumbled on the platform? I don't think so. If I were to walk on the water, I would stumble into the water. I'm just a human being. Don't put your eyes on me. If you look at me, I'll be pointing at Jesus. Because Jesus is the center of the church. It has to be. I'm not in your room when the demon grabs you by the neck. Jesus is. And the reason I don't preach from Revelation about the coming Antichrist, I preach from Revelation that Jesus is still the center. You are too much demon-minded. You're too much demon-minded. You should be, your eyes should be fixed on Jesus, not the demon behind Jesus. Put that verse back up. Well, let's finish that. We need to rush. He, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. I'm not responsible for you being a good Christian. Jesus is. You, you might be better if your eyes are on him, but your eyes are on what you want. Your eyes are on what you think Jesus should, should give you. Your eyes are on and how you benefit from what Jesus is doing. How do you become the center of Jesus' cause? You are not the center of his cause. He is. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of your faith. Perfection comes from Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Church hurt because you don't have your eyes on Jesus. You're enduring nothing. I've endured church hurt like you cannot believe. And here I am. So I've endured it. The reason I endured it is because my eyes were not on them. My eyes were not on them. I stayed with them because I need them. I did not leave them because God wanted me there, but my eyes was on Jesus. And a few seasons later, these were the ones that put me in ministry here. Because my eyes was on Jesus. On who's your eyes fixed? Jesus, not people. People will disappoint you. People don't know you. People don't have to have the reasons why you do what you do. They were not there when you were in, in, in the situations you had to deal with. Jesus was. Have your eyes on Jesus. Put the scripture back up. We'll finish with this. 
He says, he endured the cross, scorning a shame, and sat down. Next verse. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus endured it. Don't lose heart. Keep enduring. I have to rush so much more. In your struggles against sin, in your struggles against sin, whatever the category, gold, glory, or girls, in your struggles against sin, if you're in a struggle against sin, you may not know what glory and the problems glory causes for you, but become very successful and see how power converts even the greatest of people and manipulates people. Power, gold, how money perverts people and how you would violate sacred relationships just for the gain of money and how you would give up empires just for a girl. In the struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Jesus, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, the cup came to him, he says, praying in great angst, he prayed, his sweat turned to blood, resisting. My pastor said to me one day when I was talking to him about someone that was smoking, He said to me, have you resisted unto blood sweat? I've resisted like an hour. Have you resisted? How are you fighting the issues in your life? He says, if you struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted at the point of shedding your blood. Next verse. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a, as a father addresses his son. It says, my son... Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. If he is center in my life, I welcome his discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. How many of you have recently been rebuked by Jesus? Thank you. Few hands going up. By my vehicles. I can't read scripture and not see, oh, 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 oh. And then the Holy Spirit comforts and pushes forward. My children in my house, I don't just tell them how awesome they are. <laughs> Chanel was laughing at that. I don't. We can't sit down for a Sunday lunch without me correcting something. The reason I'm correcting them is because I have love for them and I expect them to be successful in life and life's hard. I can tell them they're perfect and all they do is perfect but then I'm creating for them problems that they don't know how to deal with. He says, do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Now, if Jesus is not central to your life, you will not accept his rebuke. You will find a way to reason yourself out of the correction. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. But verse six says, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his sons. The Lord correcting you. Now, this is a very difficult thing to preach about because if people want to just preach grace, Jesus is just great, grace, goosebumps and unicorns. He, he is all, he is, I don't think Jesus is just nice. And I think Jesus corrects. I think Jesus corrects. He disciplines. He disciplines me. If, if I don't have any of the discipline of Jesus in my life, I have to question, am I in the right place? He disciplines those he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts his son. Next one. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Discipline is good. Next one. If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons or daughters at all. If you are not disciplined by scripture, God's word, God correcting you through the Holy Spirit, whatever channel God wishes to use, including your oversight and leadership. He says you are illegitimate. If I challenge you on your church attendance and you take offense and leave your church hurt, I would suggest you maybe you're illegitimate. But I can't do that because that will increase church hurt. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us as we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? How much more should we submit? They discipline us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. So God is leading you to holiness. You cannot escape it. God wants holiness. God wants holiness. Without holiness, you cannot see God. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. 
for those who have been trained by it. You're trained by the disciplining of God, the chastising of God, the rebukings of God, where God corrects you. It is part of your Christian walk to sometimes be corrected. You should desire and want to be corrected. Now, I never pray. Yera, come and tell me everything I do wrong. There's enough in the atmosphere for Jesus to deal with. I don't have to pray and ask him, but there shouldn't be a problem when there are things that are not right, that God needs to come and correct it in my life. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Your feebleness, strengthen your arms and your feeble knees. Go back to that verse. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Feeble arms and your weak knees. This, this, you cannot run if your knees are weak. It's discipline, the correcting of God, that makes your knees strong for running. And your feeble, strengthen your feeble arms. You cannot do anything. Arms and hands speak of the workings, how you do things for God, how you work, how you labor in life. You can't do that if you don't allow God to speak into your life. Next one, almost done, almost done. Pay attention. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Next one. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Don't become bitter. If your eyes are on people, move on. Stop taking offense. If somebody doesn't greet you right, would you give up your future because you want to deal with that person? Move past. The saying goes, how many times have you seen a bee argue with a flea that a flower is better than dung? Have I said anything? I'm trying really hard. Let's finish this. See that no one falls short of the glory of God. That no one's bitter root grows up to cause trouble. Don't allow bitterness. I want to submit, submit 99th point. Maybe cancer. Some would suggest that cancer develops out of bitterness. I'm not saying all cancers come from bitterness. But I do think that bitterness can lead to that. Sickness in your body comes from bitterness. Your blunt refusal to take your eyes off the person that stopped your... He is not the reason you're where you're at. No single person is the reason you're at where you're at. If he is, it's because you allowed him to. Still you. Next one. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Next verse. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. I'm, I'm going to close with this. He was supposed to receive the blessing, and he didn't. He didn't because he is the example prototype of what the sinful nature does to us. He, because he was hungry, gave up his inheritance. What are you hungry for that is not godly? What attention do you think you get from being judgmental about other people not keeping your eyes on Jesus? What are you missing out? What are you hungry for? Selling what God gives you as an inheritance. That's what I'm saying. He was a child of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac. Isaac begot Esau and Jacob. Jacob and Esau was brothers. Esau was the eldest. He was the, the main oldest heir to Abraham's fortune. Imagine what he would have inherited through his line, what he st stood to gain. But because he was hungry, he gave it up. What are you hungry for? That you're, you're swapping your inheritance. This is why I'm saying one day we'll stand in heaven and go like, oh snap, I should have done more. He says, this is the final verse. I'm reading that the last sentence in that verse. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. He couldn't, he couldn't get to the place. He sought it with many tears. Don't allow things to detract from what God wants to do in your life. Don't hide what God had given you. 
begin to work these talents. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Run your race. Make, make the best of what you are. You are not me. I'm not you. You are, in fact, what God had given you. If you're a one-talent guy, work that one talent. I want to say to you, it's better to have one talent and work it than be a 10-talent guy and not work anything. Because in time, that 10-talent guy will die with nothing. And there are many one-talent guys who work their one talent and is now considered gifted people. Work what God has given you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the center. Run to him. If you have sin in your life, fight it. Resist it. Cry over it. Every night you go to bed, fight it. Resist it because the devil is unrelenting. He will not stop. He says, resist the devil and he shall flee from you. Fight it with every piece of what is in you. Fight it. Fight it. Fight it. So that you don't lose what God has set before you. He wants holiness. And I want to say to you tonight, if you keep on sinning, Jesus is gracious. He is gracious and slow to anger, gracious and compassionate. Jesus gives you many more chances than you give yourself. If you still have breath in your lungs, Jesus hasn't given up on you. If you came to this church tonight, you wouldn't have if Jesus left you. Let me tell you this right now. If you're hearing this message and it moves you in any way, that will not happen if God had moved His Holy Spirit from you. You would not even pay attention if His Holy Spirit was removed from you. If that is the case, it means there is still hope for every single person. And that hope, he is slow to anger. He is a gracious God. His hand of grace is always extended to you. Revival begins when a people realize we need to be holy. We are not a judgmental church. We don't judge what other people are doing. Let them do them. Let us be focused on Jesus. He is the center of this house. He is the Lord of my life. He is the one in whom I hope. And if you hurt me, it's fine. My eyes are on Jesus. He is called my healer. He is able to heal me through all my hurts. Please stand on your feet. We're going to worship Jesus in this room.